All right, what is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Saber Sims DFS Office Hours. It is Friday. It is August 26th of 2022. My name is Jordan. I'm the head coach here at SaberSim. And on this show, I answer questions from the SaberSim community about how to use our tools to build better DFS lineups. So your questions will drive the conversation that we have on this show here today. If you have questions you would like me to answer and you are tuning in live, first of all, welcome. And thanks for tuning in today. Uh, you can ask your questions in the YouTube chat here as we go along or the Office Hours channel in Slack. Uh, and if you catch the recording of the show or the podcast version and you have a question you'd like me to answer, you can email us, support at sabersim.com. We'll get that answered on the very next show. Uh, we have one question that came in via email here today, so we'll get that into our queue. We have a few questions across the board uh, in front of us here today. Um, a couple people uh, both asking kind of about downstreaks. Um, or down swings, I guess, and just like what what to do when it's not going so well, um, which I have plenty ex of experience with. Um, it's part of the game. We'll talk about, I think there's a couple interesting exercises you can do. I think there's kind of a couple like educational DFS resets that I think are useful that I kind of employ in my DFS play. Um, also just a couple mindset things that I think are useful, um, almost like DFS mindfulness that, you know, it's a, this is a mental game at the end of the day. I think that, um, you, even if you have a really good understandings of the numbers and the the EV and the probabilities of certain outcomes coming, your our our primitive monkey brains ultimately like have an expectation of getting uh, getting the reward when you do the work. And just in a game that where the variance is this high, that's not always what happens, right? Sometimes you do everything right for a, uh, an extended period of time, and it all goes wrong. And uh, it is hard to um, to to swallow that pill sometimes. So we'll talk a little bit about that. I think that's a good question here, um, especially heading up into NFL season where it is a high variance game. It is like the high, it is one of the highest variance sports, especially if you're playing like mostly main slates and mostly the really large field stuff. So um, a couple of questions as well about the Sims um, hedging your lineups, which I think is an interesting conversation. So uh, we'll go ahead here and get into things uh, in, in just a moment. Um, so anyway, uh, before we get started though, fire away at me. If you have questions, uh, we have a 14 game baseball slate on tap tonight. Uh, you know, I know end of August here, we've been playing baseball all summer. I know folks are probably excited for some, for some other sports, but, uh, I'm going to miss these, these big Friday MLB slates when they're gone. I, the, the Tuesday and Friday MLB slates, Tuesday, Friday, Sunday, best days for MLB in my opinion, because you get big slates. Um, it, 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 it just feels good, right? It feels like a, it feels like a, a proper baseball DFS day. Um, I like the split slates on Wednesdays and Thursdays. And um, I mean, I'll play pretty much any day, but those, those three slates, I just, it feels like it's, it's a, a proper DFS slate. Uh, keep an eye on the weather in the Boston game here tonight as well. seems like there's been bad weather in, in Boston all week. Uh, uh, that's true tonight as well. Looks like there's a pretty good chance for, for some rain there. They've been getting those games in all week um, so far, dodging some bullets, but it does look like, Probably the worst weather forecast I've seen in the Boston area this week is tonight. It does look like there is actually a potential red flag there on a 14-game slate as well. And on a slate where there's just a singular game that has weather, I think it makes it easier to consider the X out button there. Um, the, the worst weather slates are the ones where you have like seven games and three of the games have weather. Because it's like, well, do you just X out one? Which one? Do you X out all of them? Do you play all of them? Like if you play all of them, Potentially, like most of your lineups might have one player at least from each game. It gets it gets tough, right? So uh, nice news. And it's an early game. It's an early game. 
14 gamer. There's only one game on the slate that has weather. So that's all good. But uh, anyway, let's go ahead. Let's get into the questions here. Um, I'm going to start uh, with this question from Gutsman. This is kind of one of the one of the ones about uh, downswings. Um, and uh, it says, so for the last two weeks plus, I'm in a horrific losing streak. I'm not playing any differently than when I was crushing. This is the second straight season where I've crushed in the first half of the MLB season. Uh, then after the all-star break, I can't seem to win at all. Super frustrated. Any slump busting ideas. I need to see some winning again and some profit and a break from the losing. Thanks in advance. Uh, oh, and can we get some negative variance defense integrated into the SIM LOL? Okay. So first, first notes here. Um, I do think it's fair to say that the games are going to get harder as the season progresses in any sport, right? A lot of casual money leaves the sport over the course of the season. A lot of recreational players, right? Um, so your game, your games are going to get harder as the season goes along. Like, I think it would be true, you know, especially over a longer term sample that the end of the seasons are going to be harder to turn a consistent profit in harder to be successful in, um, over, over, you know, virtually any season at this point in MLB, uh, it is hard to drum up a ton of excitement for MLB DFS for the casual player, right? A lot of that casual money's, you know, at, at this point right now, like that, that casual money's probably a lot of that's going into like stuff like best ball. Um, and, um, you know, maybe even some like NFL, other NFL stuff, right? Like the, the, the baseball grinders right now are, are probably a sharper audience overall. So something to just note there. Uh, that's just true. I would also say two week losing streak, uh, is well within the range of outcomes. I had a good week, a couple weeks ago where I, where I won uh, on FanDuel twice, right? Twice in a row. Um, that was last week or the week before I, my week, my season prior to that, like my, I'm talking end of April to end of August was awful. Uh, I think not only was that my first two binks of the year, that was like my first two, like probably top fives of the year. Um, I might've had one other decent slate, like earlier back in May, I was having a big MLB skid up until that point. So two weeks is well within the range of outcomes. That's, I think, a important mental expectation setting thing that you should do. I mean, we, when we had Eric on, on stream here on our YouTube channel here. So let me actually pull this up. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's kind of the, the end of the behind the Sims project that we did, uh, the first one. So on our YouTube channel behind the Sims, basically, if you go here, let's just pull up this playlist, the last episode, or actually I need to move some things around here. Um, let's just do this real quick here. Oh, okay. Um, this video, so at the bottom of the Behind the Sims playlist, play these GPPs to maximize your DFS profits. So what this video is, this is a live stream where I had Eric come on after we did our whole contest selection um, project and kind of talk about what we learned. Uh, one of the things we talked about a lot here is just like what reasonable expectations are for DFS. You should understand, first of all, that not only can you have a two-week skid in DFS easily, you could be a good player and have a straight up losing season. Like you should be prepared for what that actually means and what that feels like. You do everything right. Your process is dialed in and you have a net negative season. That is that is within the range of outcomes, firmly within the range of outcomes. So remember that. I know this isn't the fun answer to this question. Like, hey, I've been sucking the last two weeks. Nothing's working right. Like I've been there. What do I do? And and head coach Jordan comes on and says, yeah, that happens, right? That's not very fun. But I, I really, I just want to reinforce that that, if that is an expectation, because I know there are some people out here that that will surprise them, 
right? And that that is not within their expectations. They don't expect that that's an outcome. So you, you if you if you're one of those people, you need to hear that and internalize that and remember not only two weeks of losing is possible, uh, you know, a season of losing is possible, playing everything perfectly. So now though, let's talk about you know a couple. I guess the last the last mindset, the last kind of mindset thing I will uh, talk about here um, with that is sometimes it helps to take a, a day or two. Um, I I often do that if I've had a if I've had a frustrating week or two in DFS or you know it seems like things are just kind of not going my way. Uh, it 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 is it is surprising how nice a day or two even off from DFS is in terms of just kind of resetting you, getting you ready to back to go. Um, the other thing too, is I would say, you know, make sure that you are adhering tightly to the DFS profit plan contest selection principles. If you are doing so like religiously staying very rigid to that, you know, and just truly adjusting your bankroll up and down accordingly, the swings feel a little less, bad because your 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 bankroll is coming down when you're downswinging right when you get stubborn and you start playing the same contest every night and you have a bad night and then you have a bad night and then you have a bad night and you just keep grinding and playing that same contest and what you're investing day after day becomes just a a, a few percentage points more of your bankroll and it just you can feel that that bleed almost ex- accelerating that feels really bad too but when you're scaling down appropriately then then it feels better. And I know scaling down kind of also feels bad. Like it's like, oh man, like I went, I was up here and now I'm down here, right? Like it almost feels like you've you've demoted. I try to think about that more. I think the healthier way of thinking about that is when you're up here, right? When things are going well and your bankroll's up here and you're playing a little bit more action every night. Think about that as you're like taking shots phase of your DFS journey, right? Like you've you've won recently, you've done well, you got the opportunity to take some shots at a higher bankroll, right? And most of the time, it's not even going to work out, right? You're going to slowly fall back down a little bit to some new kind of midpoint, but you're getting that chance to take shots, right? Then when you're down here and you're down swinging and you're kind of trying to grind back up, that's almost like more like you're paying your dues, right? Like that's a natural part of the game. Everybody goes through that. You're playing through that period of a natural DFS life cycle in a way that's safe and allows you to get back to where you are. But when you're down here and you're playing stubborn and you're overextending yourself and you're playing too much of your bankroll and you start getting more and more frustrated and then you just start sinking further. So let like ride the swings of your bankroll up and down right from there. Um, I actually don't think I would dramatically change my process, right? Like the question here is like, I'm I'm not doing anything differently than when I was crushing. It's the second straight season where this has happened. Any slump busting ideas? Like I, I actually think people probably start changing their processes too much when they're down swinging. I think that's a um, a common trend or start adding unnecessary complexity. Here's what I think is an interesting idea. So um, I call this almost like re-evaluation of your process. And here's how I do it. First of all, I'd take a day off, take one day off, right? The next day when you come back, play one lineup. And I'm not talking about play one lineup and play, you know, hey, hey, Jordan, I play $150 a night uh, in, you know, 200 unique lineups. So tonight I'm going to play the 121. It's not what I'm saying. Play one lineup, play play in a micro, like play less than a percent of your bankroll, right? Play one lineup in a $10, sing- a $12 single entry or $5 single entry. Or, or if you only play $20 a night, play it in the $1 daily dollar and put your full kind of process into that lineup, right? Like, Ask yourself, you know, go through your, go through kind of your process and ask yourself like, what, what steps do I, what do I actually need to do to build one good DFS lineup? And notice the things that are maybe in your process that 
you maybe don't need as much, right? Like there are, I think sometimes there is this jump that takes place, especially when you start playing a lot of unique lineups where you add complexity because the number of lineups starts to get kind of too big for you to kind of really process. And you almost stop thinking about lineups and you get, it's very easy to just get so obsessed with exposures and like optimal rates and, and all these other things. And when you, you go back and you play one lineup and try to play the best lineup possible and think about what, what are the steps that it took me to build one good lineup, right? What, what did I need to do to get one good lineup and play that the next night, play a three max and play three lineups, right? Again, not maxing out your bankroll allocation for that night, play three lineups and try to make those three lineups as good as possible. And also take notes on what is changing now that you're playing three lineups, right? Now, now that you're playing three, how do you have to all of a sudden start thinking about your diversification, right? You're not diversifying a ton. You're not going to be doing a ton with exposures, but you probably have some thought to your diversification. If you're playing a single entry bullet tonight and you had decided you wanted to play the Blue Jays, when you're playing three lineups, all of a sudden now you have to ask, am I playing the Blue Jays in all three lineups? And you almost kind of start rebuilding. It's a very grounding process of rebuilding the way that you kind of, or not rebuilding, but reevaluating the way you think about your DFS process from first principles, from like, from the beginning, right? And so you build your three lineups that night, take notes again on kind of what your process is looking like, what it took you to build those three lineups effectively. The next night, I'm sure you see where I'm going, play a 20 max contest. Again, keep play low for these. This is about, this isn't about winning. This is about reset, right? Play a low, you know, play the $1 maybe, right? Or depending on your bankroll, maybe that's the $4 for you, but don't, don't play, play a lower stakes there, right? And do the same thing, right? Figure out what does it take for you to build 20 lineups, right? What, what steps does it take? What is the, what are the differences between how it felt when you built three lineups versus when you built 20? What are the things that you're adding on to make those 20 lineups as good as possible. You're probably thinking about exposure at that point, right? You're not just thinking about lineup diversity, like how different are the lineups from one another, but you're actually thinking about like, what's my risk tolerance to a player's exposure. And I think when I do this, there's there's a few things that happen. One is it is a resetting, it is a mentally resetting process. It, it kind of details me, right? Uh, I think there's things that are fun about, you know, picking a random slate and just going back and just saying, I'm playing one bullet my entry fee is so low relative to what my bankroll is. I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not upset when it loses, if it loses. Right. Um, and you also, what happens to me always when I go through this is I'm my, I end up leaving with a more streamlined and simplified process. I all of a sudden reminds me of what actually is important to me. What is actually, what I actually matters as I'm going through my lineup construction and when I'm building my lineups for that slate. Um, and I think it's just easy when you're playing a ton of lineups and you're doing the same thing night after night to like, it, there's almost a DFS process inflation that takes place where you get used to doing the same thing. And a lot of times like I'll kind of think about something new or find something new and I'll add calculating that in or adding that into my process in some way. And then I'll do that again and I'll do that again. And I'll end up with almost kind of this Frankenstein process that I don't ever really remember actually just sitting down and saying, this is how I build my baseball lineups. And Starting over with that, I think can be a really, a really healthy and, and actually like plus EV way of, of resetting. Um, so, you know, you'll notice the way I answered this question here, it's a little, it's almost a little less DFS-y, right? I'm not like, oh yeah, downswing, uh, more correlation, right? Downswing, uh, diversify, you know, because I think, uh, I think this problem is more of a problem that exists in one's head than it exists in one's lineup optimizer, uh, so to speak, right? So um, I think that's kind of the right way to tackle it is to, to I think, you know, 
make sure that you have the right expectations set. Understand that this is normal. But I think that exercise of night off, one single entry lineup at very, very low volume. The next night, a three max at very, very low lineup at very, very low volume. The next night, a 20 max at very, very low volume, keeping track of what, what, what does it take for you to build those lineups successfully at each stage? Then on the fourth night, you return to maybe your normal volume and kind of have this maybe newfound approach, not, not even newfound, but like re, uh, realigned almost uh, DFS approach and process. And, and you probably have managed to streamline things while also detailing a little bit. That is my best advice there. Um, so, and I will do that three plus three, three to four times a season. I probably like once a month, right? Like it's, it's that frequent for me. Um, and sometimes there's life things that just like line up well with that, right? Had a bad week of DFS, maybe Friday night you're going out. So you're not even going to have time to late swap anyway. Let that be the night you take off. Then Saturday, right? Build your one single entry lineup. Enjoy the rest of your Saturday, right? Hey, it's Friday tonight. So a perfect example. Sunday, build your three lineups. Monday, you're back at the work week, do your 20. And then by Tuesday, hey, this is perfect. Tuesday, you got another big slate and you're ready to get back into it. Like having had this resetting kind of weekend uh, of, of, of going about it that way. So anyway, uh, let's move on uh, to the next question. I think this is kind of like, I think there's some similar themes with this question. Uh, this is from Rogue. He says there's three questions in one here. Oh, real quick, before we move on, um, I did want to touch on this uh, from Gootsman. Can we get some negative variance defense integrated into the sim? We are actually planning on building um, a, basically what we're calling a diversifier, um, which is a pretty cool tool. Um, I think that this may end up being an, an add-on actually, because it's a pretty sophisticated app, like, pretty sophisticated tool. Um, but what it will essentially do is it will um, basically try to optimize your lineups for upside while minimizing risk in your build, right? So there's a lot that we still need to figure out with it. Um, by by turning this thing on, you will essentially give up other uh, all your other control about where your exposures are, right? It will be a trade-off. Um, but it will essentially like auto diversify. Um, so we're looking at ways to kind of do that to make sure that that lineups are, you know, being played in a way that 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 minimizes some of that risk. So that is actually something on our roadmap. Um, anyway, let's go ahead. Let's get to this question here from Rogue or this this set of three questions. I see you guys in YouTube chat. I will promise. I promise I'll get over there here shortly. Going to start with the questions from Slack and email. So um, can you revisit yesterday's slate with regard to your new no research build process and approach? Again, I've tried it every night this week and gotten my ass kicked. Uh, I thought I understood it in concept, but apparently not. Every FanDuel main slate, I used sliders of 150 GPP uh, for 10 to 50K with zero min salary and a stack rule of at least four in every lineup because the zero salary plus stack rule potentially be impacting the pool size results and just skewing me the wrong way. Uh, I feel like I'm wasting build time and lineups if I remove the smaller stack exposures and post build steps rather than avoid them altogether. Um, okay, so let's let's take this one step at a time here. First of all, same thing I said to Gutsman here. Remember that getting your ass kicked over a week is is well within the range of outcomes, right? I've had, I've had a terrible week of FanDuel baseball, right? I've I've already I've already donated a fair bit back of what I won when I kind of ran pretty well two weeks prior, right? I get a week a bad week is. Very likely, right? That can happen. Um, in terms of your settings, I don't see anything here that like sticks painfully sticks out, right? In terms of uh, either being a um, 
you know, the uh, the stack rule or the min salary. I, I have no problems with either of those. I've mentioned before that I don't think salaries are very good. I don't think there's like a ton of reason uh, to um, turn them, turn it down or to, I don't think there's a ton of reason to have this min salary here. Um, you know, the one thing to keep in mind, the, the, like the only reason, and I don't think this is negatively affecting your lineups, but you know, the ownership can't, I don't even want to actually, never mind. I don't think min salary is affecting things. I don't think your stack rule is affecting things. Um, it sounds like maybe it's just kind of variance not going your way. Uh, but let's do a build for yesterday's slate. Since you asked me to do yesterday, I'll walk through kind of maybe how I would go about doing this, right? How I would go through and, and kind of think about what lineups I want, what I wanted my lineups to look like and how I would, how I would go about doing this um, and, and see where we go from there. So um, you said it was something like this. Um, we'll do exactly your settings here. Um, and we'll do a 1500 lineup build because I think that's the most useful. This might take a minute to run because I'm going to set a stack room. We're going to do 1500, but we'll let it get there. Uh, and We'll go from here. So, I mean, I guess I will say, actually, the the min salary is an interesting one. Before we, actually, I'm going to let this start building, and I'm, then I'm going to talk about this. When when that ownership does creep up, right? The defaults yesterday for a contest of this size, ownership fade was six, which is actually a pretty big impact on your lineups. That can be a situation where I, I maybe proceed with a little bit of caution with a zero min salary, just because I've mentioned this before on streams low salary builds provides an easy out for the ownership fade slider, right? It's very easy for the, when you don't have a min salary floor for the builder to just build low salary builds because they are low ownership. Um, but I don't think it's a huge deal. I don't think it's a huge factor. Um, just one thing to, to note there, but, um, this will take a minute to build. I'm going to let this build here because I think it will be most useful to, um, to answer this question, to have like a full 1500 lineup build. Um, while it's building, I'll, I guess I'll kind of mention like, you know, I have been, I've been taking this approach a little bit more and taking and, and doing less of the research builds for a couple reasons. Like one, one is because I think that especially in baseball, some of the assumptions that are baked into a research build just I've mentioned it before that I had concerns about them. I, I've been more concerned about them recently. I think trying to figure out how likely a player is to be in the optimal lineup just may not be as good of a method of determining efficient ownership in baseball as I thought it was. I think it could potentially lead people down a dangerous path. Um, I also, you know, I think the pool exposure does a better job of, of, um, of giving you the tools to make some of those decisions for yourself. Now, for what it is worth for the past week or so for me, I haven't been like taking, I would say I haven't really been taking a ton of like extreme stands on certain players one way or the other. I've more just been focusing on really trying to diversify um, rather than saying like my stand on the slate is this or is these three things. I've been kind of just saying, I'm going to let Sabersim kind of like build me that pool of lineups that does make sense for this slate. Uh, but from there, my, I'm going to just, I'm going to just heavily diversify. I'm basically making the statement that a lot of the lineups in the pool are similar EV and, and I might as well play as spread out as possible. Um, there have been multiple slates in the past week or so where my highest exposed batter is 20% across my portfolio, uh, across 150 plus lineups. Um, there, so like I, I've just been taking the stand of like, I might as well diversify. And I think that will also help make the bad weeks a little less bad because you'll be winning back a little bit more equity each time, each, each slate, right? You won't, 
you'll have less less donation slates. And I know, I mean, SaberSim sometimes will tell you, especially in your top 150, like, hey, the right move is 70% of one stack. And I I think it's important to remember what that is, what that implies about what your range of outcomes looks like for that slate. I mean, it, it could go really badly in a hurry, uh, especially on the hitting stacks. Um, and as we get into football season, right? Uh, the, the wide receiver, um, the wide receiver position and stacks as a whole and the tight end position and the defense defense position, uh, like these are running backs, even like all NFL is a high variance sport. And I think, um, you know, you should be prepared what is implied by having a significant portion of your lineups invested into one asset uh, in your your portfolio. Um, so I will continue to go through and do kind of a walkthrough um, of this build here in just a moment. In the meantime, let me see if there's any quick, quick wins I can get um, here with some questions in chat or something like that. Um, uh, this is a quick one. I'll mention this from Skull. He said, Hey Jordan, do the percentile projection columns update every time you run new Sims in the app in the back end, or are they set per season per week? So um they are they are from each individual sim. So they are saying like that is the you know 85th, Tom Brady's 85th percentile is 35 points or whatever it is, right? That is that is the that is basically saying in the full range of sims we have for that game. 85% of them are 35 points or less, basically. Or in other words, is that he exceeds 35 points in 15% of sims, right? That so, and it is on a per sim, and they will update every time a sim runs, right? So, like, I mean, especially if big news breaks, if you know, for some reason, Dalvin Cook is always the example that pops into my head. Let's say, you know, the inevitable slate this year. That will will almost surely come at some point where Dalvin Cook gets ruled out and Madison's projection jumps up like astronomically. His percentiles will jump up accordingly because they're based from that sim. So, um, um, we'll let we'll let this build finish up here. Um, let's see uh, a couple other a quick question here from Nipsey that came in in Slack. Um, he said, uh, hey, Jordan, just curious if the Sims accounted for Adam Engel with the White Sox dropping the ball in foul territory and essentially costing them game. Yeah, it was uh, that game play for play was actually Sim number 9,374 from last night. So we nailed that one. No, in, in actuality, all the, this very like weird stuff that sometimes comes up, right? That stuff's not literally captured in the Sims, right? Like, it, it, it the sim isn't even as as granular uh as like um you know uh right now a an out is basically just like an out like a strikeout is different but an in play out is just kind of like in a, in a probability that can take place in at and at bat we don't the sim isn't as granular as like the you know ground out to short versus like fly out to right field or something like that so um, the the I, I assume this question is uh, kind of a joke, um, at least a little bit. But the the actual honest answer is no, it doesn't. Um, but it also doesn't really matter, um, like in terms of who gets the out. I, I do think like mistakes. This is just a perfect example of like what is like visually what is variance or like in part what is variance, right? Like this 
that is is a very good example of of why there's so much variance in just projecting sports outcomes at all, right? Like making mistakes, like on like professional athletes literally just messing up is such a hard thing to quantify in a simulation. Like, how do you even do that? Uh, much less to talk about like injuries or things like that, but it, it's difficult to to quantify there. So um, I'll also note here, just since we have the build up, um, actually, never mind. We'll we'll come back to that. So. Um, anyway, let's get back to Rogue's question here. So let's walk through kind of what my approach is here with these um, with these builds here um, and talk about this. I'll go ahead and get my pool exposure pulled over because I think that's important. Um, and we'll start talking about this. So uh, first thing again is I'm still somewhat limited. I'm still, oh, actually, you know what? First thing I typically like to do is look at my stack exposure, but I forgot we set a stack rule. So in this case, we have all four stacks for a six game slate like last night. I think that's more than enough. I don't feel the need to narrow down from there. Um, I will also, the very first thing I do before I start doing anything else is just look at these hitting exposures and I will diversify. I mean, this is what I saw last night and this surprised me. It's a six game slate. There's only 12 teams on the slate. And there were teams with really good projected run totals and the highest exposed hitter was 20% in your pool, right? I mean, that should be, that I, that should that should mean something to you. Right. I, I I was surprised to see this. Right. There have been slates where, you know, on a on 14 game slates in the past week, 15 game slates where the highest exposed hitter was 35 percent in my pool. On this slate, it was 20 percent. I diversified my hitters heavily last night. Um, I actually matched the pool, the highest pool exposure there and just set a cap of basically 20 percent max exposure here. So that looked like this. And I immediately that in effect immediately actually pushed me onto some, some, uh, lower on plays. Um, and in, in primarily actually got me onto, um, some more Boston and Toronto and some of these stacks that actually had some success. I didn't get to a ton of Yankees last night. I don't think maybe I did. Um, I didn't have the right Yankees. That's for sure. Because I ended up losing mostly as that game wrapped up last night. Um, but I went through and like the first thing I did was diversified. Right. And that was, again, that's based on the, the thesis of that is this pool of 1500 lineups represents a subset of the viable, a sample of the viable lineups you could build on this slate. And within that subset, similar to the research build, but a little different, right? Within that subset, there's no player appearing more than 20% of the time. And in a position that is so highly variant anyway, where almost every player's most common outcome is zero, I don't feel the need to like, I'm, I don't feel the need to get over that number on any one hitter, right? Why would I? The lineups, I'm going to get a ton of upside in these lineups based on the fact that they're so well correlated that like who cares which of all of these very roughly equivalent hitters end up in the lineup. That's kind of what I'm thinking there, right? Um, I went and then looked at pitchers here. Um, you know, there's a couple different ways to take this. Um, what I did last night is... I looked at this and I said, you know, collectively, DeGrom and Nola represent almost 70% of the pitching outcomes, right, of the pool here. The ownership on DeGrom looked kind of efficient, mostly, right? Like if if he's in 42% of the subset lineups in the pool and he's going to be 45% owned on FanDuel, cool, great. Um Nola, I guess there's a case to be made that he was going to be overowned here. Um, but they th this was just a weird slate where they were like so far above. I mean, the next best overall player was 
7.7% here, 7.3. And we're talking about Jamison Talon and Jordan Lyles. Like these were not exciting names. Also by projection here, um, there's such a projection drop. What I ultimately did is I didn't actually touch my pitcher, pitcher exposures and I just played only DeGrom and Nola based on that. Now, if you, if you looked at this instead and you were like, well, no, Jordan, I I've been listening to the shows that you've been doing. And what I did is I used this number and actually diversified my pitchers heavily because the chalk was so chalky, right? Like, and there's only 46% DeGrom in your pool. I capped this at 50%, right? And I capped my Nola at 25% and got to some other pitchers, I probably wouldn't tell you that was a bad idea, right? Actually, like I, I get I get the claim there. And that's that's part of the reason why when I talk about these research builds and like the way I kind of go through this, there isn't really necessarily a step-by-step process. I, I My goal is to give you the right tools in your toolbox so you can make some of these decisions yourself. I don't think getting... I don't think managing your risk at pitcher was necessarily a bad idea based on these numbers. What I did, given the drop-off from pool exposure and from raw projection from anyone not named DeGrom and Nola, was um, was to just play only them. And that also actually kind of gave me more fuel to the fire of diversifying. Oh, crap. It accidentally... Whoops. That's annoying. Um, I'm going to redo this real quick. That actually gave me more, more cause to feel confident in my batter exposures, right? And I think that's actually a good thing to keep in mind is the push and pull of your hitting exposures versus your pitcher exposures. And if you are diversifying, if you are concentrated heavily in one and diversifying in the other, then you should be diversifying in the other, right? And if you are, you know, if you're like, typically there aren't a lot of slates where I want to be very concentrated on my stacks. That doesn't happen very often. So the most common actual way this ends up working for me is on the slates where I am very um, concentrated on my pitchers. I want to embrace being spread out on my bats. Um, the last thing that I went and, and did, and I actually didn't really do too much this last night, but the last thing I kind of would have done here uh, is basically go through and look at my stack pool exposures here and just see if there's basically any teams that are jumping out to me that you know I'm not getting exposure to, and I think there's a reason to get exposure to them, mostly from an ownership standpoint. Um, and there weren't a lot that were showing up here. Like I thought Philly and Toronto were going to be the most heavily owned teams. So while they were both um, showing up like as my top stacks, I they were also showing up in a lot of my stack pool exposures, which are already measuring against ownership. Um, I think there's a case to be made to maybe drop to maybe just cap exposure slightly here so that you're not getting well over the field on the two chalkiest stacks. So I could see, um, you know, doing that here um, and maybe just saying like, I don't want to, I don't want to be like too far over the field on these teams. I might as well get to some other teams, but I I thought, uh, I don't know why I didn't get to a ton of Yankees and I'm getting to Yankees now here. So I don't really know what happened there, but I love the idea of being on white Sox and Yankees. And actually Boston was probably one that I think is a good, Gossman was somewhat like a little bit chalky there last night. And I think it made some sense to get to Boston. So the indication that you're only getting 8% in your 150, but he's in, but they're in 18% of your stack pool. That to me seems like a pretty good sign to get onto them. Um, I actually probably would have done the same with Minnesota. Uh, again, Luis Garcia got some ownership, um, was a stack that people just weren't getting to very much. Um, and um, given the fact that I'm willing to play some NOLA here, I probably actually... Given and that there's some Colorado showing up in here, I probably would want to have made sure that I was getting to both some Colorado and Cincinnati here, which I am now, just because 
you're only playing one pitcher on FanDuel. I like Jagram and Nola. I might as well get a little bit of a hedge going there on the other lineups where I'm not playing the other person. So um, that's kind of what I probably would have done. And then, you know, obviously go back through here and, and kind of just clean it up one more time. Forcing some Colorado stacks got me onto some cheaper pitchers here. So that's fine. Um, you know, check my exposures one more time to hitters. That looks pretty good. And I'd go from there. So that's kind of what it looks like. Um, the, there was one other question here from Rogue as well, and I think this is a good one. Um, uh, lastly, when two pitchers have positive leverage against the field, except say one is 10% owned and 17% optimal, and the other is 5% owned and 12% optimal, would you recommend targeting them in the same fashion or give more exposure to the more optimal pitcher? Give more exposure to the more optimal pitcher. This is a very, very key. This is a crucial point to understand when you're kind of thinking about optimal ownerships and, and these rates of like probabilities of showing up in the winning lineup. A player, these two players that you've described are very, very different, right? Because the raw probability of being optimal matters, right? It is always, it is always more valuable to have a player that's going to show up in the optimal more, assuming the leverage you are getting on them is equal, right? Like a player that is, you could take this to a much more further extreme, right? A player that is going to be 50% owned and shows up in the optimal 70% of the time is so much more valuable to you than a player that's going to be 10% owned that shows up in the optimal 30% of the time because the optimal rate matters, right? That is that is basically like your rate of that play showing up successfully, right? I think there are I think there are people that might disagree with me on that because of the way that the ownership actually ends up coming into play there, like you get additional relative edge, um but based on the way that be, be on a lower on play. But the way I think about it is that like the, 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 a player that is going to be shown, the player that shows up more op, optimal, more often is always more valuable than a player that shows up optimal less often, even if you're getting the same leverage on those players. That's my take. So, um, okay. A, let's get to a question that had come in, um, uh, on support. Uh, in, via email um, about hedging, and then we'll get then we'll we'll uh, circle back on the other YouTube chat questions. Um, said I do have a question with regards to hedging and whether or not you have any data or personal experience in the scenarios where your starting pitcher on the early part of the slate is crushing, uh, as well as an early stack. Do you think hedging with an entry into the late night slate with a stack against your other starting pitcher and playing the starting pitcher against your stack is a plus EV play? I think this is very interesting, personally. I don't have any data on this. So first of all, I know you're asking about data. I don't I don't have data on this, unfortunately. I think this strategy is actually pretty interesting. Um, I think I, I think basically the idea here is that you're especially if you're playing such a few number of lineups, like you can almost certainly, if you have a lineup that's doing very well in the main slate and is basically like already you know, kind of committed to the players who have already been locked in, it's probably very likely that you can build a plus EV lineup in the late slate that hedges directly against that, right? Because there's so many good lineups to build. Um, I will say, I think it's an interesting idea. I think there's some, there's some value to this. I think it gets a little bit harder the more lineups you are playing because exposures only tell you so much of the story, right? You can only get so far with just knowing your player exposures. And when you're trying to like hedge in this way with a late 
lineup against an early lineup, it gets harder to know exactly what the right way to do that is unless you're actually like looking at individual lineups. So I think it gets easier the fewer number of lineups you're playing. I also think that if you are if you are going to do this, you sh- you should be saving some some bankroll allocation to do it. Right? If you're playing 5% or a, if you're playing a big portion of your bankroll already in the main slate, I think like doubling down to hedge by getting more action down in the night slate is more dangerous than just having let it ride and played at a more safer bankroll allocation. So like I would only do this if you're basically essentially you're intentionally committing additional bankroll to like daily wager share to do that safely in a way that's not damaging to your bankroll. But I think the I think the spirit of it is interesting. Um and I think you could do it. I think you could do that either um I, it's so cheap to do that. I think you could do that either just by playing a few lineups or by just checking and kind of keeping an eye out on lineups that are overperforming as the slate goes along. Uh, and then later, you know, if you have a lineup that's doing really well, look at what what does that lineup need to be need need to have happen to be really successful uh, at in the later games, and then enter into the late slate with a lineup that takes the exact opposite stance, right? Like your stacks of uh, really, I think the best example that I can think of is like. Let's say, um, well, last night's not a good example, but let's say for tonight's slate, right? Because we have more games. Let's just look at this and see like what this could look like for tonight as a hypothetical. Um, so let's say like you've, you've played the early and your stack's crushed and then... Um, you're heading into the night slate, which is just like a two, it looks like a two game slate here. And I like you have Shane Bieber as your pitcher, right? I think that's a decent hypothetical. And you're basically, if Shane Bieber crushes, you're going to to take something down. I, I actually kind of like the idea of then building a quickly, like building a, a night slate lineup or a couple lineups that basically just like go all in on Mariners. Um, I think there's, I think there's something to that. Um with that, um, with that said, I think baseball could be a tougher sport to do that with just because there's so many games and so many different lock times. Uh, I think I'm actually pretty interested in the idea of doing that for football because football has one kind of main late swap window. Um, I typically, most years in football, I play the early slate, the main slate and the afternoon slate. Um, and I've never really thought about my afternoon slate lineups in that way as as a way to hedge against my main slate lineups, but I think there's some, some value to that. So I, I like it. I don't, again, I, I, I don't have, I, you asked, do you have data or personal experience with doing this? And I guess the answer to both of those is no, unfortunately. Um, but I do think it's an interesting idea. I would say the main things to keep an eye on, uh, is one, just be aware that like, I think, uh, this is probably easier to do with a very small set of lineups rather than like a big lineup portfolio. And two, make sure that you are not just maxing out on the main slate and then getting additional action down on the night slate, just because to, to hedge, give yourself the alley, like save the bankroll allocation for that night slate hedge. If you're going to do that, uh, rather than, cause otherwise you're going to, you're going to be hemorrhaging bankroll and it's not always going to work out. Right. Even in this example, even if you're, there's plenty of examples where neither, the Mariners nor Bieber like perfectly crush. And then all you've done is just played additional action and gotten no value out of it. So, um, but 
I, I've been kind of more interested into the portfolio optimization side of DFS recently, where you're you're kind of thinking about like just just with the idea that there are so many different combinations of ways to play that is positive EV. Like, what is the way that you can optimize that such that your risk is minimized as much as possible? Like, I think there's actually a pretty strong argument that you know I think the common I think a common trend in the way that people think about like three maxes, for example, even the way that three maxes will be built when you build with SaberSim will basically say like, hey, take virtually the same three lineups and change a couple things about them each time, right? Like for your three max build, play the same main stack in the same pitcher and then just change the other players. I actually think it is to your benefit to, to, to do the opposite and to play basically as different, almost as different as possible three lineups because it's especially on a 14 game slate, it's almost certain that the EV of those lineups is all identical. And in fact, it, in, a, in a three lineup subset, it may even make sense to negatively correlate those lineups against each other, right? To play like three different pitchers and in each lineup use a stack directly opposed to those individual pitchers, right? Because the EV calculation there is going to be so similar to any other lineup. You might as well play a, that three lineup portfolio in a way that is as diversified as possible. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting applications here. I, I've been thinking about a lot, a lot of this recently. And like you can see here, right? Like that's what's happened here. It's Cole and it's Cole and Rays in every single one and Phillies in three, right? Like I think basically it's, it is to your benefit to try to diversify these three lineups as much as possible, provided that the EV calculation, and I know this is, a, I'm going on a tangent here, so bear with me provided that the EV calculation is close. And the easy way to see if the EV calculation is close is to see how much Saber score you have to calculate, how much Saber score you have to give up to do this, right? So what I'm attempting to do is play no stack in more than one lineup and no pitcher in more than one lineup, right? As just an experiment. And we'll see how basically how far we have to go, right? And you could do this by projected points too. So now we've done this, right? So lineup one is Saber score 100, projected 137.3. This lineup gives up four projected points and two Saber score. And this lineup gives up another four projected points and two Saber score, right? We're at lineup 222 out of a pool of 500. I would say that it is probably true, right? Obviously I don't have like the Sims for these individual lineups to back this up, but I would say it's probably true that the EV of these lineups is similar. And now we're playing in a way that diversifies us significantly. And that this actually is the more appropriate way to build for a three max in a way that limits your downside as much as possible, right? I think this is what our lineup diversifier is probably likely to do if you were to hand it this pool of 500 lineups and give and say, give me three, right? Why? I mean, even for just three lineups, why even play the, why even play a player in more than one, right? There's so many lineups you can build. Why play the same player twice at all, period, right? There's probably not a very compelling reason to do that, right? Maybe even this is actually better. Right. So anyway, I rambled there. I went on a little bit of a tangent. Um, I can't remember the name of the person that wrote this question in, but I, I do like the spirit of what you're thinking about here. I think it's interesting. Uh, don't overextend your bankroll. Um, cool. Uh, let's keep it going. Uh, Eric says, Hey Jordan, why am I not getting any Yankees in my builds after last night? Uh, I don't know. What does last night have to do with anything? Why am I uh, why am I not getting any uh, pirates in my lineups, even though I had spaghetti for dinner? <laughs> right. 
I mean, I, I, the, the, basically the, the honest answer is that, uh, your, your Yankees, the, the Yankees data point of them going off last night fits into the Sims along with the entire rest of the season and what we know about each individual hitter on the Yankees accordingly. Um, overreacting to last night, I don't think is the right strategy, but if you don't believe you're getting enough Yankees and you think you should be getting more, I think the very first thing I would do would be bumping them up by a half run, then seeing how many Yankees you get. And if you still aren't getting enough, give them another half run. And if you're still not getting enough, there's probably something related to pricing or ownership or lineup construction or something like that that makes them very difficult to, to roster. Um, but the 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 Sims are not going to overreact from a single game of baseball where a team scores 13 runs, and neither should you, I would say. Um, in fact, I would probably rather just hope this doesn't even happen very much anymore because people have gotten kind of sharp, but I would rather just hope that the field overreacts to that and and you can go play somebody else. So um skulls oh we answered this question already. Uh okay another question from school. I know this is probably explained in detail somewhere, but could you give a quick explanation on how rookies projections are done for NFL? So there will be so this is an interesting question. I will answer this briefly here. Uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll have the models team come on and talk about the NFL Sims and especially a lot of the work we've done to improve it for this season. Um, I'm going to answer how this has been historically done, right? Um, and then I'm going to mention how we are planning on doing this in the future. And this is for all sports. Um, and then we can talk about this more on that stream when we have the guys that actually build the Sims out come on in the next couple of weeks. So the way we have kind of historically done this is we will assume the exception here is baseball because it's very easy to get minor league data. So my, so for baseball, we, we have a little bit more of kind of a, a minor league equivalency adjustment that takes place when a prospect gets called up for other sports like rookies in basketball and rookies in football, we start with assuming that they are a league average player for their position, weight, and height. Their usage in the individual teams and the individual players, or in their individual teams and schemes and things like that, comes from our, our data sources and our own adjustments there. So like, we'll, we'll understand, let's say there are two different running backs that are the exact same build, that are both rookies, but on one team, one's gonna start and the other is on the third string. We'll kind of assume basically that those two players are roughly the same talent level, but we'll pick up on the fact that they're going to be used differently in those two different offenses. As data comes in and as we learn more about those players, that's when we start to build out the model of, oh, this is actually what that player's skill set is and what that player, like who that player is in the NFL and adjust accordingly. But to start, that's basically kind of how it works. In the future, what we're actually working on building right now, and I think this is actually pretty close. This is something that will have a pretty good effect, pretty big impact on rookie projection for NFL and NBA, is a way to kind of understand priors based on what they did in college or in their previous careers, maybe if they're an overseas player or something like that, right? Um, is a way to basically say like, this player's expectation is X based on Y. And like for, for NFL, it's a little bit harder for me to think through this, but for like basketball, right. We can differentiate between like a, you know, two, six, seven small forwards, uh, one of whom is a three and D guy and the other who is like a slasher, right. Like who are going to do different things where right now we don't, 
necessarily always pick up on that as well. Like projecting rookies is just hard. This is a problem for all projection models. Um, so this is a big thing that we want to improve, but that's, that's kind of the way it works right now. So I, I, I want to be very clear that like the way that player is used in the offense, we feel actually pretty confident about how we're doing that with our usage numbers. It is more about understanding the overall skill level and skill set of that player that right now is a little bit harder to do when, the, when there's no professional history for a player. So that's kind of how we're doing it now. That's where we're going. And uh, the, the, the models team can give you more info on that um, in a, in the stream we do in the next couple of weeks. And we'll, I'll make sure to announce that in Slack that that's coming up um, when we have a day for that. But I would, I would say probably the week of opening day, um, maybe like Monday or Tuesday of, of opening week, we'll probably do that stream. So cool. Um, Nipsey has an interesting question here. Um, based on previous discussion on losing streaks, how can, ca how many casual players and semi-serious players will just give up on DFS altogether and just go to traditional sports betting as more States are legalizing it? Do you think DFS can sustain itself? That's an interesting question. Honestly, um, a lot of interesting conversations going on about this particular question, like on other DFS podcasts, um, I know on the high stakes podcast, Neil pretty much asks all of his guests like how they feel about this kind of question. There was an interesting discussion about it on Lowell's recently as well. Um, I think there's something to be said here. I mean, I, I think uh, for a casual player that's looking that like isn't really looking to optimize and like min max anything or like even isn't really just wants a sweat like their your money's going to go quite a bit further in like just betting sides and totals uh, than it is like throwing lottery tickets into, into GPPs, which like isn't super good for the, the DFS um, market. I mean, I will say the, the signs that DFS is, are, are, is growing is, are still really positive, right? I mean, this is, this is probably going to be the biggest NFL DFS season ever, right? Golf has blown up. NBA gets bigger year after year. I think MLB seems a little stagnant in terms of its its year over year growth in the DFS place space. Um, so I think there I think there is still an argument here to be made that like DFS has gotten hard for the casual player. It's very difficult for for a a, a full on casual player to um, to be successful. Um, but I think the signs that the I think the the signs still point to it being a growing market, which I think is good. I think that's healthy for the ecosystem. I also will say that like. When I say casual player, I'm talking about the guy like hand building a few lineups at the bar, right? The if you're listening to this, uh, if you're listening to this show and and using SaberSim, you probably still have a significant edge even over what I would call the semi-casual player, which is like the guy who like maybe goes on and like watches a couple random shows and maybe builds with like a traditional optimizer and kind of otherwise doesn't really like get it so much like doesn't really know like you probably still have an edge over that person and that that bucket is probably still pretty huge so i i'm pretty optimistic i would say long term still um with the um with with, with the the long-term direction of, of dfs i i think you know it's eh. It's hard because if you were on the business side of this at DraftKings or FanDuel, there's a he, there's a legit cost to reducing the rake, right? Like an immediate legit cost to reducing the rake. And it's not a, it's not 
a sexy thing to the casual customer anyway. Like the avid DFS player is interested in a rake reduction, but that player is already playing anyway. So I think a lot of times you hear people say, well, reduce the rake. It makes the game easier for casual players, but casual players don't really know that. And then all of a sudden you just start losing a little bit of additional money for each contest you run. And the players that we're going to play are still playing anyway. Right. And in fact, they might just be winning a little harder right now, all of a sudden. So I, I think that the conventional answer to this is like, oh, well, reduce the rake. And I don't know if that actually works. I, I, I would be interested. I, I think like I, it would be nice to see a good faith, like uh, Olive Branch extended by DraftKings or, or FanDuel um, of like, a, we are we are committed to growing the DFS product among new players still, because you don't always get a ton of that anymore. Um, I think there's a lot of excitement about sports betting being legalized. I think there's a lot of excitement about things like best ball and pickums along with traditional sports betting. Um, but it would be nice. I think it would be nice to see that even though the signs are still positive that DFS, especially in its largest sports, are still growing pretty rapidly. Um, so Metal Alloy says, what's the guarantee that they'll make any money in sports betting? People are semi-successful, get limited by the books real quickly. Talks about DFS's demise is greatly overstated. Yeah, I don't think it's so much about that person actually being profitable sports betting. It's that they're just going to, their money's going to last way longer, right? I mean, if somebody's just sitting down and like throwing, I don't know, like 50 bucks on NFL sides every Sunday to have a little bit of a sweat, that's going to last them way longer than throwing 50 bucks every Sunday on um, like the, the, the Millie maker, or even like a, a, even a flatter contest. Right. Like it's, it's just, and like to, that person just wants to sweat, right? Like they're just, I don't know. So I think that's kind of the concern is that like, you're going to, I mean, the, the true casual, the true, like ultra recreational player, that's just like doing it for a little bit fun. will just get eaten alive in DFS. Now, like you don't even have, you don't even stand a chance. You're going to have some equity. We get one back just because the lines are so tight on the, on the main markets, right? That like, how badly can you get killed? Can you get killed? Like betting, like, I mean, minus one Oh seven, minus one Oh seven, Vegas totals and, and, and spreads on NFL over the long term, right? Like you're, you're going to lose slowly basically to like the fig, but you're, you're not going to get like crushed. I mean, just comparing just, I mean, you're, you're, you're competing against like what, like a 3% vague most of the time on those markets against 16% rake in DFS. Like just, just on that alone, assuming that you're just like a perfectly average player you're going to get crushed in DFS way faster than you're going to get crushed in sports betting. So I think that's kind of part of the problem is that like, I, I think DFS, DFS doesn't necessarily have a problem still like attracting new recreational customers. The The problem is, is how do you make the game function in a way that that player can kind of play long enough to sustain the ecosystem? So that person kind of has a good experience, you know, most of the time, I think for the casual, like, gambler basically they just want to feel like their money went somewhere that they like got some entertainment value out of the thing and if you just get smoked over the first six weeks in dfs i don't know if that feels the same as um i don't know as, as like you could probably make a, a bankroll even with just like some 
some very basic bankroll management knowledge make uh, a decent sized bankroll last you all all year betting on games on relatively even low vig markets and still lose and just say you had fun doing it um i actually think this is an interesting you know this kind of goes another direction i think this is an interesting uh reason why uh, contest selection recommendations in DFS. Uh, this is kind of a maybe a juicier piece here, but I think uh, contest selection uh, recommendations in the DFS content world are somewhat what they are because some of these sites know this. Uh, and we have always taken the other side of that, right? Like we're, we, in our most recent contest selection recommendations, we recognize the role that variance plays, and we have tried to develop a contest selection system that minimizes variance. But at the end of the day, the best re- contests to play are GPPs, right? Cash is not the best way to grind a bankroll. Now, is cash the best way to make a bad player spread let their bankroll last as long as possible? Maybe. Or are very small field, 100-man, 200-man GPPs the best way to make a bad player? Let their bankroll last as long as possible? Maybe. I think it's probably better than playing the softest contests out there, which are actually the largest GPPs, right? And I think there's an incentive to to make those players have their bankrolls last as long as possible. So I've always felt that, um, that, you know, somewhat important to remember the incentives um, that different people have for giving different advice. So, um, but we, uh, and, and the variance is real. You have to take into account variance, which is why the DFS profit plan does. Um, but anyway, um, I, 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 maybe that's just a justification for, for why I can't comprehend why anybody's recommending or like, even like, like what, why, why, why do people recommend playing baseball cash? Like it, that you hear that and it's like, why? So anyway, um, Kirit said, what if the DFS sites had a rating system like Lowell to allow only similar skill level players to play against each other? Well, the problem then is like the, you, you alienate your, your whales, basically like your super sharp players who represent like probably a quarter to a third of the total rake that like DraftKings even collects is probably from the most highest volume, highest skilled players, Right. If those players all of a sudden know that they are just playing each other, they're just going to give up, right? That's kind of some of the mistakes that Yahoo DFS has made is that they have in trying to make the games as fair as possible for that's, this is the problem, right? Is that it's zero sum. So as the games get, as the games get more weighted towards the worst players, you alienate the skilled players who also are a very important part of the ecosystem. Because if they're gone, then then the money's gone. And then when the money's gone, the prize pools are gone and the casual players die of it, leave eventually because like, what are we doing here? We're playing like games for $500, right? So you kind of have to let the skilled players feast on the unskilled players a little bit, but you still have to make the game, you still have to keep the unskilled players in the ecosystem. It's hard. It's a hard problem to solve. So... All right. Anyway, uh, getting back to another real question here. And then I, I guess uh, suddenly we're already at an hour here. Um, so um, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here shortly. But um, Eamon said, what's up, Air Jordan? I was hoping we can go over the significance of bumping up projections of players versus bumping up teams for MLB. Um, Yeah. So interesting. I mean, interesting kind of question here. 
I, I think there's like there's advantages to kind of doing both. There's reasons why you would want to do both. So the the main reason why you would want to adjust a team exposure, right? And this isn't a good build to use. This is our three max. Let's build 20. Let's build for a 20 max. The main reason why you would want to adjust like team exposures is if you knew what the number of, ex like you knew the exact exposure you wanted to get to a certain team, right? Like if you know, and that number could come from anywhere. It could be, you know, 2x an ownership, a stack ownership. It could be 2x the percentage of the um, the lineups in your pool that have a stack in it. It could just be a number you just made up and you're like, I know I want 50% twin stacks or something like that, right? And if you just know that number, great. Um I, and I think that's the easiest way to do that. If you just have that information, I think the advantages of adjusting projections, like a team projection or individual player projections is you get the opportunity to kind of ask SaberSim a what if question, right? If you go and say, I want 50% twin stack, SaberSim is going to say, great, here they are. Good luck. Enjoy, enjoy the slate. If you bump up the team total for the twins by a half run, you can say, hey, SaberSim, if we're under projecting the twins by a half run, then how much ownership is appropriate to have to that team? And it, I think it can help. Now it's not going to, you might still get zero, right? It might give you none, right? So anyway, let me just show you this, right? So if we do 50% twins, where's your, all right, we get 50% twins and we go on our way, right? There they are. Twins start showing up here at the bottom of the lineup, right? There they are. But if we come back here, right? We can basically say, okay, Sabersim thinks that the twins average team total is whatever it is. I saw it earlier. Uh... 4.1. But we say, Sabersim, what if it was actually 4.6? I have an edge. I did some research and I think it's 4.6. Then you can ask this what if question and say, okay, now tell me re relative to all the other variables, all the other teams you could play, all the other players on the slate, the ownership projections for each team, et cetera. I'm going to build another set of lineups and go from there. So that's kind of, and now I think I need to refresh here because it seemed like it didn't load. That's kind of the difference. That's kind of how I think about it. Um, so a lot of times I kind of think about it from the standpoint of like, what what am I trying to accomplish? And I do a little of both, right? It kind of depends on the, the sport and the slate and kind of just, I don't know, where I'm, where I'm at. I would say recently, I've been adjusting the projections a little bit less, I would say, um, focusing a little bit more on the exposures. But that's just because that's kind of, what what has felt right on 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 different slates for me, and not because one method is good and one's bad, but um, I am curious now. So just we so we can we can go full circle with this, um, and we can see here, you know, the nice thing. So I, I would say also I know this question was like um, bumping up projections of players versus. Oh, did I? I maybe I might have totally uh, missed. I may have maybe have totally misunderstood this question. I'm realizing now. Um, I hope that, I think that answer that I just provided was still good, but now I'm actually realizing that I think what this question was saying is what is the difference between bumping up player projections versus team projections? So I think I think I misunderstood this question. So I'm gonna answer that one now anyway. Um I would I would actually say for baseball, if you want to adjust projections, I would almost always recommend doing the team projections because what then what you get is you get an adjustment to all the players playing in that game accordingly. Right. So you can see what happens here uh, is that the team, right? Like if you're higher on the twins than, than the projections are, 
it's hard to know, hey, how much should I bump up each player relative to where they are in the order, relative to their original projection, et cetera. That all gets kind of ha- handled automatically for you when you bump up a team projection. The other nice thing about it is like if you're higher on the Twins lineup than we are, you're actually also higher. You're you're probably lower on Alex Wood, the Giants pitcher, than we are, right? And that also actually does surprisingly have a very, very minor impact on the hitters on the other side, like very minor, but it does have an impact there, right? Looks like slightly, you know, most of the Giants slightly go up here um, a little bit. So because baseball is so, so, so hyper-correlated, uh, I recommend in general, typically adjusting team totals rather than individual player projections. Now, if you're like, if there is a particular individual player that you just think we're under projecting, right? Like maybe for one reason or another, you are, I don't know, you like are high on Kyle Tucker, right? Just one guy. I don't think it's a bad thing to just adjust his projection, but I just don't think there's a lot of reasons for that to happen very often. I think in general, it, it things are more thought of on a team level. So I would make the team level adjustments. I would say that's generally true for football as well. I think there's a little bit more room for individual player adjustments on football, just because there's, there's a lot of diversity on different positions, right? And like, I could see a situation where like, maybe you think our overall chargers team total projection is correct, but you actually think that they're going to, um, rely on, I don't know, for a particular game because of the way they match up, maybe you think that the Eckler projection is too high and the Mike Williams and Keenan Allen projections are too low, right? In that case, maybe you want to do that at the player level. But I would say um, mostly, broadly speaking, I prefer to edit team totals because you get the correlated adjustment. And that's true for high correlation sports, baseball, football, hockey. Uh, For basketball, I actually don't think that you get almost anything out of adjusting the team totals, because in that case, individual player projections just matter so much and the correlations are just so much lower. So that's the difference. Um, Sorry, I misunderstood the question. I actually think the question that I made up in my head and then decided to answer here was also still useful to talk about. So hopefully that helped somebody out there. Um, Because I do think that that is also a common question is people will be like, should I adjust player? Should I just projections or exposures? And I think it's useful answering that. But um, at least I did actually get to answer the question that was actually asked here. So, um, anyway, um, cool. All right. Well, we are all, uh, we're all caught up on questions. I, I think, um, we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and cap it off there. It was a good stream today. Thank you everybody for, for tuning in, hanging out for the last hour here. We, uh, we covered some good topics. We, we got to talk about downswings, I think. Um, which is just important. It's it's good to talk about that. It's almost good to just like sometimes just state that on a DFS show because um, people don't want to talk about their 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 downswings, and um, then by extension, you don't get a lot of people talking about like downswing mitigation, I guess almost, which I think is an important topic as well. Um, we got to talk about you know um, the managing your builds, diversifying, setting your exposures, adjusting projections, all kinds of different stuff. So I'll be right back here again next week, two o'clock Eastern on Monday. Enjoy the 14 game slate tonight. Uh, Enjoy or actually keep an eye on the Boston game. I will say both confirmed lineups being out is probably a positive sign to the weather uh, on that game, Um, especially Boston already having their lineup out. That sometimes can be somewhat of an indication that the team intends to play the game, Um, but keep an eye on that. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your weekend, or I guess enjoy your weekend. Uh, Just getting started, right? Um, and I will see you all on Monday. Take care.